Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, Catherine. For the listeners that didn't join us for the last episode, can you give us a brief recap of how you found yourself with such a a niche or, as they say in the US, niche title as the former head of the FBI's active shooter program? It's quite a mouthful. It would not have been my first choice if I was coming up with something to write on a name tag. But (laughs) I was I was working at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. back when a terrible shooting occurred at a school. It was in 2012. And among the dead were 26 and seven year old children. So I was sent to work with then Vice President Joseph Biden's team. We were just looking for ways that we could stop the killing. That's amazing. You are one of life's serial do-gooders. We need more of you. Get the cloning machine out, I say. And that incident that you spoke of was the Sandy Hook school massacre that we spoke about in the earlier episode. There's so much great content in there that is for everyone, not just for parents. Catherine, tell us about today's case. It's really a horrible shooting situation that began a few minutes before four o'clock on July 18th, back in 1984, when a 41-year-old man, he was carrying three different weapons, entered a McDonald's restaurant in the San Ysidro district of San Diego, California. During the 77-minute rampage, he killed 21 people and he injured another 19 before the police sharpshooter managed to take him out. It was just really horrible. And at the time, the massacre was considered the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman in the United States history. Wow. So is this the origin story of mass shootings in the U.S. as we've sort of come to unfortunately know them? A lone gunman striking anywhere at any time? No, actually not. It's an early one. But for people in my field, we really look back all the way to a shooting in 1966. That was a shooting in Texas. But this is definitely one of the early ones. And it taught us from law enforcement standpoint, some important lessons. So maybe it's more the origin story of how law enforcement was forced to form a response to a problem that was unfortunately set to explode. And it has exploded, hasn't it? Oh, indeed, it has. You're right. Where, you know, Sarah, once there was a handful of these types of active shooters that struck each year, research shows the number doubling and then tripling. And we're not talking about all gun violence. We're talking about these horrific shootings in public places where anyone can be a target. Is there a short answer as to why the numbers are increasing? Is there an easy why? Well, 
there, there isn't an easy why. There's really a lot of factors. I think it has to do with the psyche of people in general right now, I think with reflective of the pandemic. But also, you know, I feel like personally, if you're just asking me, which I think you are, we're just, you know, I am. <laughs> <laughs> we're just accepting violence more. And we're very frail. There's a lot of intolerance right now. And you can't really kind of ignore the explosion of gun manufacturing and purchasing in the United States in particular in the last 40 years. The San Isidro McDonald's massacre is one I hadn't heard of. So what can you tell me about that massacre? Well, on Wednesday, July 18th, 1984, as I mentioned, at 3.56 p.m., so just uh, around dinner time, a 41-year-old man entered this McDonald's restaurant in San Diego, California, in the San Ysidro district. That borders Mexico. It's right near the Mexican border. And he was carrying with him three weapons, two 9-millimeter semi-automatic weapons. One was an Uzi carbine. One was a Browning pistol. And he had a 12-gauge Winchester shotgun. So he had plenty of ammunition. I'm not going to detail who got shot when and where because I don't want to re-traumatize any family members or survivors. But I will say that he almost immediately began shooting and ordering people to the ground. A lot of the patrons crouched down below plastic tables. They huddled together as he walked around the restaurant shooting at groups. It was, yeah, it was as bad as it sounds. So the police responded, you know, per their protocol, they surrounded the restaurant while he was continuing to roam the restaurant inside and kill people. And a bit more than an hour in, police were given authorization to shoot to kill. And about 10 minutes later, a sharp shoot around a roof about 35 feet away, which would be maybe 32 meters, shot the killer dead. Wow. It was as horrible as it sounds. Um, and freaking awful. Yeah. And when it was done, he had killed 17 people inside, four other people outside the restaurant. And their ages ranged from six months to 74 years old. Unbelievable. These people were doing something so ordinary. You know, the day probably started like any other. We know that there were 21 murdered and 19 more injured, but how many were in that building when the shooting began? Well, it was a dinner crowd, right? So there were about 45 people inside altogether. Some were driving up, some were walking up. For example, there were three 11-year-old boys who were shot. They were coming for ice cream sundaes on their bike. There was an elderly couple, 69 and 74 years old. They unknowingly walked into the shooting and they were killed. Oh, gosh. So 40 people, that is, by my count, were either murdered or injured, and there were 45 people inside the building, plus more coming into the vicinity. That's pretty bleak odds. So how many survived that day on site? Well, I think this is a good thing to consider when you talk about a shooting in public. A lot of people yeah. survived because they turned away, right? They, they mm. heard something and they didn't step into the firefight. I will say that only one of the three boys on the bikes survived, and sadly, he watched the other boys die um, no. of those 19 who were injured, including a set of parents who drove up with their four-year-old only to be met with a hail of bullets. They survived. Seven people, including one who had been shot and then like crawled there, survived when they hid in a basement utility closet. So there were survivors, uh, people who made decisions to take care of themselves. And we're going to look specifically at what went wrong in more depth, but I want to talk about those decisions about the run, hide and fight. In 1984, run, hide, fight, it was long before this became a national mantra, but did you see examples of this in San Isidro that people perhaps instinctively did? Yeah, yes, we did. Things? That's No, that's a good way to put it, instinctively did. Right. So first let's talk about run. You know, many yeah. people who are outside, they saw what was happening 
they heard what was happening and they fled to safer locations. And a lot of those people are the ones that turn into those witnesses you see on television. So we saw a lot of people who ran, but we also saw some who walked right into the shooting and were killed. So let's talk about Hyde. I mentioned the seven survivors, including the person who was shot, who survived because they hid in a basement utility room. And there were some people who tried to hide, but they really didn't have a place to hide. And then consider fight. No one appeared to have tried to attack the shooter. There were families with kids, employees, older people, younger people. Most people kind of cowered in front of the killer. They froze. And I don't mean that as a criticism because everybody's got to make their own decisions. And no matter what you do in those situations, the most important thing for survivors and their families is to never second guess what somebody did and the decision they made at the time. That's a massive healing aspect of uh, being able to be a survivor and recover from it is don't second guess what you did at the time. You did what you did because that's what you had to do. But the glass surrounding the building, really filled with open plastic seating, as you know how fast food restaurants are, really gave people places to cower, but no place to have cover or concealment, what we refer to as cover or concealment, meaning that you could be hidden from the shooter or protected from shootings. You know, I know it's hard to think about running in this situation. No one wants to be a target, but that's really the safest strategy when there's no place to hide. Consider that the killer's first trigger pull, which you, we wouldn't have known, but the killer's first trigger pull in this case failed. And in fact, the people who were witnesses who talked about it later said there was a kind of a disbelief that he was really there to do anything. You know, if one of the first people killed just kind of turned away when the killer pointed towards him. So I think that was the disbelief that cost lives. I think everybody wants to put a logical and kind mm-hmm. of innocent answer and explanation to what's happening. And that's the first kind of mistake we make when we don't take that next logical step and think oh, it might be dangerous. And that's really part of you know, as a longtime law enforcement officer, that's part of my training is to is to be suspicious, is to automatically go to, is this a bad situation? And that may seem a little bleak to live your life that way, but it's important to do that, you know, in order to save lives. It's that thing that we default to truth, isn't it? You know, and honestly, nobody knows what they're capable of until they do it. And we've seen it in action. So true. You don't know what you would do, but if you've trained yourself a little bit, you've probably got a better chance of picking the right lane. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones 
physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. The age of the victims ranged from four to six months up to the 70s. Is this unusual? It feels really indiscriminate. You know, I mean, very seriously, killers come to kill and they don't discriminate. I would say that maybe the exception to that is that I've seen is in uh, school shootings. For instance, at the middle school level, you get a 13 or, you know, a 12 year old with a handgun, which in and of itself is a shocking concept. And sometimes we see those youngsters maybe turn a gun towards a classmate, but then turn away. So I don't think that necessarily has to do with age. I think it just has to do with frustration in who they're targeting. But killers come to kill. They don't discriminate. Well, that's just genuinely monstrous. Another detail that does stick out is it went on for 77 minutes. Can you put that in context for us? How long is an average shooting incident? Because 77 minutes seems like a very, very long time to be huddled under a table or just in that, oh, just a horrific situation. No, you're, you're spot on. It was as horrible as it sounds, but I would say this over an hour is unusual. Really only a handful of places where I've seen this type of length of time. I think our research at the FBI showed 70% of them over in five Five minutes or less. And in fact, half of those, two minutes or less. So oftentimes, your need to protect yourself is just for a very few minutes. So be the sprinter, you know, on the course and be the one who saves your life because you save yourself for that two minutes. You chose this case for the series because it was a significant turning point in law enforcement response. Can you tell me why that was? I chose this case for two particular reasons. One was police officer mental health, and one was the way that the officers actually responded. In this case, how the police officers responded, and no fault to them, but the police officers were initially sent to the wrong McDonald's. So that delayed their arrival by about 10 minutes. So if you think about 10 minutes, when an incident could be over in five minutes, a 10-minute delay is pretty significant. That's crazy. It seems like a very significant mistake. Well, you know, here in the United States, some towns, the McDonald's is on every couple corners, right? And I think in this case, obviously, it was an innocent mistake on the part of the responders. And as the calls come in more, then they realized, oh my gosh, we're sending the first people to the wrong location. So that delayed it a little bit, but it was obviously not intentional, but it was just a factor and it delayed. So they finally arrive at the scene 10 minutes in, and what does that look like? Well, you know, when they get there, they do what they're trained to do. Officers arrive, they contain and wait for SWAT. Contain and wait is a kind of, it's a terminology in law enforcement that means contain the scene. Don't let anybody else get into the scene that could be injured. Protect everybody outside, protect everybody inside. Don't let the bad guy get away. This was the time period when law enforcement was beginning to develop SWAT teams. And those are specialized teams that include snipers and include breachers and people who can get into a scene safely. And so that's what they were doing, contain and wait until the SWAT team comes. So they were doing exactly what they were you know, trained to do. And I will say that after this shooting, law enforcement as a whole did exactly what they normally do. They look at the factors and they say, hey, could we do better next time? Mm. You said the other reason you chose this case was to do with mental health. What does a shooting at the McDonald's have to do with office and mental health? You know, the shooter roamed the building for 77 minutes. He shot a total of 257 rounds of ammunition. 
There were 175 officers who responded in one way or another. So a lot of those officers were in a position where they were kind of waiting outside as instructed. And they were listening, hearing the shooting going on, seeing glass broken, and imagining what was going on inside, hearing people crying. Some of the people were shot outdoors. They weren't able to get to them. Um, Wow. They were outside helpless to move in. Right, right. So after this shooting, the National Institute of Mental Health footed the bill for review by a San Diego Police Department's psychologist. was really one of the first full looks at officers as victims kind of documenting the the guilt they might feel, even though they were doing exactly the best they could do at the time, problems they had with sleep and depression, they had trouble with memory, all kinds of just what you'd expect, mental and physical troubles that manifested because of these issues. And so really, this was a first situation we validated the need to take care of the responders mental health. Because before that, buck up, you know, Buster, mm-hmm. you're going to be fine. Yeah. And and we don't think of a police officer, or a firefighter having mental health troubles over responding. You know, it's just do your job. I do my job. And, and it really created a situation, you know, it has through the years where law enforcement was kind of looked at as weak if, if they wanted any help in mental health. And this was the first step in to say, no, these guys have the same kinds of trauma that other people at the scene have. Do you think that's changed that attitude in law enforcement now? Oh, yeah, it definitely has. We've seen some substantial changes in mental health, including the fact that some departments make it mandatory. Oh, I'm surprised that it's not. It seems like it would be a default position. Is it not across the board then? Well, I think, you know, across the board is not a possibility in the United States. We have 18,000 law enforcement agencies, but mental health is high on the list now. We've seen over many years the stress the law enforcement suffers results in suicides, which are often a direct result of an incident. I will say that, you know, we had an assault on our U.S. Capitol here in January and the law enforcement officers who were there and protected the Capitol that day, I think they've had three or four suicides subsequent to the incident on January 6th because of the stress of that day of that event. So mental health care is very important. And still has a way to go by the sounds of it with those figures. Right. So many things that could go wrong did go wrong in this situation. But it's important to remember that this was an event that wasn't common like it is now. So how did it shape the responses to all the incidents that we have seen since? Well, I will say this was for police response very much the start of a kind of a long slog, kind of validated the need for the responding officers to go to the threat, you know, even at their own risk to have the training so they can save innocent lives inside a building. We've seen this challenge. It's come up from this protocol or strategy at the shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado for example, the teams who responded, you know, came from different police departments and different law enforcement departments, just like occurred here. They didn't have common radio channels. They didn't know what others were planning to do, whether you were in the front of the school or the back of the school. And that really kind of delays their ability to coordinate and get inside the school. So I think what we've seen is every time an incident occurs, we as a law enforcement community evaluate it and say, okay, how can we do this better? What was the problem that we had? Why couldn't we respond faster? And I think San Ysidro really gave us that opportunity to start looking more intensely at that and say, here were the factors. How could we have chipped away at some of those factors? So we've come a long ways in training, but mm. you know we still have a long ways to go. I've got such admiration for those who take on the role of protectors in our community. Oh, so brave. I really just can't fathom being in that situation where you're required to actually run towards an active shooter rather than 
running like the clappers in the other direction. How often do those brave first responders actually become victims? Well, we really don't have any idea back then uh, in terms of statistics in a good, solid way in these kinds of shootings. But I can tell you what we know about now. When I was in the Bureau, we did some research on something that's more current, you know, in the last 20 years. And we found that in instances where law enforcement had to engage a shooter, at least one officer was killed or wounded 46.7% of the time, meaning almost 50% of the time, a law enforcement officer. So it's an incredibly volatile situation for law enforcement who has to engage a shooter. Terrible odds. That's terrible odds. That's been consistent for the last 20 years, but has there been anything implemented in that time frame that has had an impact on that number at all to bring it down? Well, I think that the training, I think that's the biggest thing is that we don't really know what the numbers were before, right? We know the research from now. Right. Um, but in the last few years, this has become even more volatile for law enforcement. People are more confrontational, but I think that's because law enforcement is trained to get in and get to the shooter, right? Law enforcement is choosing to put their lives at risk to save innocent civilians. And because of that, more of them are killed or injured. So I think that's the first thing that I think everybody should remember Mm. um, when it comes to law enforcement. And then second, they're doing that based on more training. They have more training now than ever before how to get to those scenes successfully and stop the killing. And I've seen it happen. I know it does happen, even with a an individual or two individuals with handguns going after somebody with an automatic weapon. Their training allows them to stop that shooter. Amazing. You know, the sad thing is that when this actual incident happened, it was reported to be the deadliest mass shooting of all time in the U.S. by a lone shooter. So if you're sitting in 1984 in the aftermath of this, you could be forgiven for thinking that it was just an anomaly, an event so rare that the likelihood of it happening again on this scale, you wouldn't see in your lifetime. But that wasn't to be the case, was it? Oh, no. Actually, in my business, we try to not use the terms like the deadliest, anything that with EST on the end of it, right? The worst, That's the least, the, the deadliest, the most, all of those, because this was the deadliest. But I can assure you that shortly after that, there was another deadliest. And then there was another deadliest. And when we started to see particularly media coverage that referred to it in the headlines as saying the deadliest mass shooting in the United States, the worst, you know, the most killed. And we started to see charts that use those extreme words. We know now from a research standpoint that that impacted the kind of contagion effect. Uh, We started to see more and more shooters. So truthfully, I don't talk about the worst, the deadliest, because the deadliest today is going to be, there's going to be a deadlier one the next day or the next month. That's a really interesting point. And I'm looking forward to learning more about that in the Columbine High School episode where we will be discussing the contagion effect. It's really easy to discount the power of words. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're going to take a look at the killer's background. So what can you tell me about the killer? Well, the shooting occurred right in California, but the killer was born in Canton, Ohio, thousands of miles away. He was married. He had two children, teenagers, essentially. We later learned that he was somewhat of a sad and sullen child who enjoyed target practice. He had post-polio syndrome meaning that, you know, he was recovering from and he had residual uh, effects of having polio. He was somewhat bullied because of that. As he got older, he, he took a job. He worked as an embalmer at a funeral home. He worked as a welder. He and his wife and kids moved to California, right near this McDonald's, right near, a mm-hmm. few miles from this Mexico border. And together they watched movies. We know they ate dinner together. 
But there were reports of domestic violence against the children and the wife. And though he had worked in Ohio, California was really not as kind to him. And he had lost his job a week before the shooting, according to his daughter, who did one interview 32 years later. There's a few interesting points in there. Let's look at the day of the shooting. Do we know if there was a trigger event that occurred leading up to it? Well, what we had is kind of a blended event, right? He lived in Ohio, but he wasn't working in California. And the shooter had said things to his wife in the few days before. And in fact, he talked to his wife about getting mental health care. So what did he say to his wife? Well, he told her straight out, hey, I need mental health care. He had sometimes a very calm demeanor. Uh, she told a UPI reporter a year later that he had told her society doesn't have a chance. He had called to get a mental health assistance. In the few days before, though, they had done some different very family sort of things. The day of the shooting, the day before, he called the a mental health care facility to get some assistance. Uh, he didn't hear back from them. The day of the shooting, he left the house with a gun over his shoulder, and he said, I'm going off to hunt humans. <gasps> what? So she said she didn't take him seriously, that he made quips like that all the time. Wow. Now, okay. you know, whether in hindsight, uh, coping, right? Was it Was it the truth? Did he say it calmly? Did he always joke around and say things like that? I mean, left with a shotgun over his shoulder. Cheap as a hype, no. When the daughter did her interview, she said he supposedly uh, told her, I won't be back. Uh, I will add, you know, that the future investigation after the shooting said that she and her children had been victims of domestic violence. And she often reacted in a way that would keep him calm, right? So even if he left and said that, she uh, would maybe not have reacted, right? Right. That makes more sense. But what about the call for the mental health assistance? What happened there? Well, in the day or two before, the family kind of went about its business. They they went to the zoo, they had meals together. And the day before the shooting, he called an emergency number for mental health assistance. He told them that he needed mental health assistance. He reportedly sat and waited for a return call for several hours in a chair in his home and the call never came. When he didn't call, he got up and he left. Then he came back later and supposedly, uh, you know, again, interviews in hindsight, right, that he was very calm on the phone. He didn't get a call back that day and the shooting occurred the next day. Wow. A lot to unpack there. Interesting that he recognized his own mental unwellness to the point that he even reached out for help. And actually, that reminds me, I remember reading on Wikipedia that there were a few reasons that the mental health facility he contacted didn't react in time. And one was that they wrote down his name incorrectly, which I'm still not really sure how that would have affected a phone call. And two was that his demeanor was polite and he had told them that he'd never previously been hospitalized for mental health issues. So the facility marked the file as non-crisis, which came with a response time of 48 hours. So I wonder if this is not a crucial moment in how the incident unfolded. Could it have been stopped if there was a more robust screening system in place? for the mental health facility, maybe? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that's where we look at, especially now, there's all kinds of news reports and discussions in government agencies about how much funding is there for mental health. Mental health is often, you know, underfunded. There seems to be never enough. And often it seems like in the mental health world, and not to speak for those professionals, but it seems like they're always just looking for that top, you know, 2% that, that might go off and do something violent instead of looking at the ways that we can massage and manage some somebody who's struggling at at a moment's time. 
and I'll say this about the concept of mental health care, uh, people getting mental health care is not a marker for committing this kind of act of violence. Right. Uh, most people in the mental health world are getting mental health care, are trying to get help. All of us have struggled through our lifetimes. You know, I've had two children. I've struggled with a job. I went through a divorce. We all have struggles up and down mentally. And that's what mental health care is designed to do, is to help you through that. So add on to that the reconstruction of a teenage brain. Add on to that a person who's lost their job, who's filed for bankruptcy, who has struggled with alcoholism or drug dependency. There are lots of reasons to provide good mental health care, but there aren't always necessarily the funding for those. It's a sad state of the world everywhere, not just the US, I think. So on top of the mental health issues, there's also domestic violence. Those very chilling comments that he made whilst slinging a weapon over his shoulder about hunting humans. Were they a normalized occurrence in this particular household, do you think? Yeah, I think depending on the level of domestic violence, particularly where a parent is protecting children, we do see that anything to keep the situation calm. Obviously, the family was still together. And so when you're True. choosing to keep the family together, even that sight of a father just leaving the house may have been a relief. So it's understandable why they might not have said something at that time, because he was leaving. And that takes the tension away. It reminds me of our conversation in the Sandy Hook episode about typical and atypical behavior as well. I mean, for this family, it seems that his behavior that day fell into the typical category for him. However, to the outside world, that behavior would appear atypical. So the question becomes, who is in a position to see or witness this behavior that is outside the family? And what would they be seeing? Like a man loading weapons into a vehicle, maybe? Would that have been something that somebody may have witnessed, for example? Well, a man loading weapons into a vehicle is not uncommon in the United States. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and here we go again. In, so many, sure. in many areas. And of course, it's not really the weapon, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, plenty of people shoot uh, target practice every week. So it's the, the side of the weapon itself. But I think the way the weapon is carried, maybe a, a weapon that's not properly uh, secured, it's just hand carried. That's certainly one thing. There's no question that the family may have been dealing with an angry person. And, you know, but others around the family may have known that too, right? And they would know what they see as his behavior or his typical behavior, whether they hear yelling coming from the house. And, you know, we want to believe that violence won't escalate. And we always want to say he didn't mean that. He's just kidding. I think in law enforcement, every time you interview people after tragedy, they say, well, you know, he was kind of kidding. He didn't mean it. He would never do anything like that. We hear that all the time. So definitely there are people who maybe could have seen things, right? Mm -hmm. And let me ask you this. Reports say that he was walking down the street with that weapon out for a while. He stopped at a grocery store. He stopped at a post office. Presumably, maybe he was looking for a target. So before he settled on McDonald's, if you had seen him walking down the street with a weapon, would you have called the police? Well, it's really interesting that you asked that because I want to say I would, but just the other day, I had an incident that made me really question whether I would or not. I was in the car and I was coming up to the end of the street and an older man with headphones in was on the footpath. And while I was waiting to turn out to the street, I just kind of caught a glimpse of him in the corner of my eye. And he'd come up to the window of the car and he was gesticulating and, you know, you could feel the anger even with the window closed. So I wound down the window, wound down, you know, pushed a button. It's not 1984. <laughs> but I wound down the window and he went off on one about how he had the right of way, which he didn't have the right of way, by the way. But in those situations, I always go for the kill them with kindness approach. In this case, because he looked like he was ready to damage the car, like he was really that fired up. But afterwards, I thought that this guy 
he's a bloody grievance collector. Oh, that's a good term. It's one of my favorites. And we can maybe see that in the San Ysidro shooting. In many cases, we see a shooter who they start out with one thing that bothers them. And whether that's a real or perceived grievance, which is why I call him a grievance collector, then they stack it on top of it. It's like they put a backpack on and every time somebody else bothers them, it's like putting another big stone in their backpack and they carry this backpack of heavy stones around and that mm. backpack gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And because it gets heavier and heavier, they get angrier and angrier. And their way that they lash out to somebody like you at the car, it's not commensurate with the issue. He could have said, hey, right. I had the right away, right? But instead, yeah. he's screaming at you. Yes, that's because his backpack is full. Yeah, it's like his perceived grievance really didn't match the reaction. It was just so angry and over the top. I mean, even if I'd been in the wrong, I thought at that moment, that person seems like they were out for a fight today. And, you know, afterwards, I wondered if I should have reported it. But of course, no crime had been committed. So why would I? And so that brings me back to your original question. Would I have reported a man carrying a weapon down the street. Well, if I was in the UK or New Zealand, then I would have, as that would have been a super unusual sight. But I'm not sure about the US with the gun laws. They're very different. Was it unusual to see a person with a weapon in San Isidro at that time? So first of all, despite what it may sound like over the pond, everyone is not walking around in the United States with a handgun or a shotgun. So to see somebody carrying a shotgun down a street is relatively unusual and it doesn't hurt to call. And I think that's a part that, you know, we want people to appreciate is it doesn't hurt to call. If you call and it's nothing, then it's nothing. But police are at least aware and police would rather know ahead of time that there's a person walking into the grocery store that has a shotgun than, sure. than yeah. not know. You don't have to be the one to make the decision. That's the beauty of it. You make a call, somebody else makes a decision, right? That so in fact, in this case, someone did call the police and said, hey, I saw this guy with a shotgun, but they too gave a wrong address. The <gasps> wrong address was reported. Oh. Can I ask, was that yes. before he got to the location? Yes. Oh, wow. Catherine, what sticks out to you in the background that is the most glaring behavior of concern? I think there's two. Someone who has had violent tendencies and those around him who fear him, they're not going to report. You may have a situation in your family where you know that there is some coercion going on or domestic abuse going on. The person who is your loved one may be unable physically but incapable mentally to make a call. And you have to also look out for them. It's so much easier, of course, when we're on the sidelines to see somebody else who might be in trouble. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing I would point out in behaviors of concern is what experts call leakage. It's a term that's used to say that we found out something because somebody chose to release that information by mistake. Think about a balloon that's filled with helium and there's a tiny little hole and that helium comes out a little bit at a time. It's the pressure inside the balloon that's letting it out. And that's what leakage is. You might telegraph prescient words of warnings and actions. Even when this gentleman left his home, he said, I'm going out hunting humans. Now, this was the shooter's fault alone. Don't get me wrong. It was not any issue for his wife or his family to take any responsibility for. Uh, you know, with the harbinger of a gun over his shoulder as he left the house, that was very foreboding, really foreshadowing sign. But they didn't report and other people who saw the gun didn't report. So who knows who else might have heard him say things like that and put them into the category of he's just talking. So how often 
would you discover some sort of leakage has occurred in a mass shooting? Oh, frighteningly common. In the cases of the types of shootings that occur in like high schools, those situations in particular, the leakage is up as high as 80 and 90% of the time, including some shooters who actually tell somebody else that they're going to do the shooting and then it's not reported. So leakage is a real significant factor that's often ignored. So in your book, Stop the Killing, it's actually full of those kind of jaw-dropping facts. And I remember reading in that that there was a link between the amount of assailants involved in a single incident and the leakage that occurred that can expand out. What you're probably referring to is when we have two people involved in a shooting or more. And that is a good point. When you have two people who are, it's a conspiracy. And every time we always, in law enforcement, we kind of have this comment about in a conspiracy of two, you can always get one person to turn. Conspirators talk, they do things together, they're twice as likely to leak, intentional or otherwise. So when we have more than one person involved, we have a much better chance of catching an incident before the shooting occurs. Wow. As usual, I feel a touch smarter after our conversations. And I definitely think that my aha moment for the day is leakage. It really is quite fascinating. We know that leakage is the most common type of a tell, right? The most common sign we miss for someone at work, that leakage is to a coworker or even a family member. For school-age kids, classmates, school officials, friends and family. Friends and family are the ones who see and hear the leakage. They are the ones who have to report it. So we're going to round out our episode with two questions. And the first is, What are the hard lessons that we learned from the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre? Well, crouching down on a floor and hiding under a plastic table out in the open, even if you huddle up, makes you an easy target for a person who's intent on killing. So as hard as it is, you have to be trained and you have to get up and run or even fight. And if I could cheat and maybe just give you one more, you know, responding. (laughs) Well, I know you said one and now here I am giving you two. Police have learned definitely that they need to try to get to the shooter faster. Now, they have had a lot more training to do so, at least in the United States and somewhat in the UK. And the law enforcement who were there, they have to get to the shooters faster. In this case, think of how many rounds were fired after those first five minutes, hundreds. Yeah, I imagine that is a very uh, hard pill to swallow. You know, that's our job in law enforcement, though. Our job in law enforcement is to look at every incident and look at the worst situation, the worst information, and be honest with ourselves about it, because that's how Mm -hmm. we can save lives in the future. So the second question that I wanted to ask is, what are the moments of incredible humanity, the moments of resilience and courage or bravery that we saw at San Isidro? Oh, I'm going to give you two. I can't help it. You love it too at the moment. Apparently. (laughs) Well, remember, I told you about the parents who drove up to the drive-thru with their four-year-old only to be met by a hail of bullets. Yeah. As the 21-year-old mom fell to the ground, she handed her baby to her husband, who handed the baby to a passerby who rushed the baby to a hospital. And that hero's name, Lucia Velasco, all three were shot and all three survived. Oh, And that's wonderful. And also, I think my second is just that, remember I told you there were people who hid in a basement locker? Yes. And survived. They helped an individual who was shot and crawled into that facility so that person could survive. And I love that.
Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Woo! 
Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.